0: Psalms 19, surprisingly enough, and I thought about uh, Thanksgiving and and all the different uh, uh, sermons on Thanksgiving, and I thought, you know, I've never spoken on being thankful for the Word of God, and so I thought that was appropriate for us today. He's brought us through, and He's brought us through by His Word, and all of the testimonies that have been given this morning are because of the Word of God and because of the promises of God that he's given us in his word. So I want to to take a look at this this morning. Psalms 19, verses 1 through 14. (laughs) Okay, stand up. (laughs) It's good for you. It's good for you. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run its course. It rises at one end of the heavens. And makes its circuit to the other, nothing is hidden from its its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Fear of the Lord is pure enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgressions. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, add his blessing to scriptures. You may be seated. Father, we're thankful for your word. Thankful for the privilege of being able to hold this word in our hands and to relate to it day after day after day. And allow it to speak into our lives, into our families, into our hearts, into the circumstances of our life, and know that that this is that which will give us the strength and the help that we need. We pray this morning, our fathers, we share from this passage that it might uh, give us light and uh, enlighten our hearts and our minds even further to rejoice and be thankful for the word of God. And this is our heart as we share this morning, in Christ's name we pray, amen. So there's many reasons to be thankful for the Word of God, right? We all can can stand and give a a testimony. This is a psalm that's filled with doctrine and dogma, you know, does that sound exciting? (laughs) Doctrine and dogma this morning, which are very negative words actually in our society. Just uh, for a second, let's consider what that means. Uh, First, doctrine is something you take by faith, not something you can prove. Secondly, doctrine is something you trust in. You base your life on it. And thirdly, doctrine is something you promote. It's something you think is true and you think it's good for other people, for their lives as well. So you you, you, you know what people say. Some people will say, I believe everyone should determine what's right and wrong for their own lives, for themselves. Well, guess what? That's called European individualism. And guess what? That's a particular view of reality. That's a philosophy. It's dogma. It's dogma. You can't prove that. It's something you take by faith that everyone should do whatever they want to do. Secondly, you can't prove that there's no God who wants you to believe in him, who wants you to live a certain way in your life. You hope there's no God like that, perhaps. You're betting your life on it. You're taking that by faith. And then thirdly, you're promoting your doctrine. When you say, I think everybody should be open-minded like me, that's another way of saying, you all should accept my way of thinking. You all should accept my doctrine. You're promoting. You're promoting. That's doctrine. There's really no way to get around or avoid doctrine-based living. So we might as well ground it in the wisdom and the strength of the Word of God. This particular psalm is all about the Word of God. It's about how God communicates to us and uh, how do we know anything about God at all. It has three parts to it. It's real simple. It's like a three-part sermon. It's real simple. In verse 6, in the first six verses of Scripture, uh, they're all about what we would call the soundless word of God. In verse 1 and 2, it's all about communication. Day after day, they pour forth speech. It's about proclaiming the knowledge of God. So first we learn this speech is coming from the natural world, right? That's what it's saying here. It's coming from the heavens, the stars, the moon, the sun, the ocean, the mountains, the natural world. That's what the scripture is saying. And then in verse three, we notice there's no such speech or language where their voice is not heard. What does that mean? Verse four, they have no speech. There's no words That's a poetic way of saying that nonverbal communication, speechless speech, wordless words, the natural world is sending us information, talking to us, giving us knowledge about God, but it's coming to us in a way that's nonverbal. Nonverbal. Psalms 19 is really an answer to a, a set of questions like, Why, when you hear the ocean roaring, why is it when you see the birds fly and they're going south right now? We saw a bunch of them last night. Why do these things fill us with joy? When we look at the stars in the sky, when we look at the sun, why do they fill us with wonder? Why do they take your breath away when you're thinking about nature? The sun is a huge ball of gases in combustion. That's what it is millions of miles away from here why do we write poems about it why know what david's answer is know what the biblical answer is to this why does it move us why do we think about it why does it bring tears to your eyes many times or lift you up when you look at nature it's just a mountain it's just a stone just a ball of gas. David's answer, the biblical answer is in verse 1, at the end of verse 1. Nature proclaims the work of his hands. Proclaims the work of his hands. Everything in nature is saying, you are not an accident. You are the intentional design of an artist beyond any artist that you've ever seen or known. You are not an accident. In other words, the stars, the sea, the canyons, the mountains are literally speaking to us. That's what scripture says. Even if your life is a mess, or you're mentally, or you you don't believe in God, whatever your philosophy is, when you look at the mountains, when you look at the sun, stars, when you look at the all of that, they're speaking to you, and they're saying, you are not an accident. You are made for a purpose. Life is meaningful. Macbeth is wrong. Life is not a tale told by an idiot signifying nothing. He's wrong. At some level, everybody hears this. That's what it says here. It goes out, Scripture says, and it goes out to everyone. Everyone looks at the this, everyone hears this. Everyone sees this. There is no place, verse 4, where their voice is not heard. Every person in the world is hearing that life is meaningful, that people are important, that there's a God behind all of this. Isn't this radical? Isn't this a radical thought? I don't know of any other view of reality. And I look at a lot of them, and I look at a lot of philosophy that can give you a higher view of the natural world of the environment. No other philosophy comes close to Christianity and how it views the world. Elizabeth Elliot made this statement. She said, if the Bible is right, a clam glorifies God better than you do because the clam is being everything that God made it to be, but we are not. Therefore, a clam has a leg up on us spiritually. A clam. A clam. We're humbled before a tree and the moon and a clam. It's radical. Because they're doing what God created them to be and to do. Secondly, this text tells us, and and, and this kind of blows me away, I'm not sure that any other uh, religion does this. but, But think through it with me. People who don't believe in the Bible, people who reject God are nonetheless going to be filled with wisdom and love and joy. They're going to be filled with wisdom and love and joy because whether or not you believe consciously in God or in the Bible, God is speaking to you, he speaks to all people, and he's saying there's meaning here, there's value here, people are valuable, the world is valuable. Life means something. Everyone's getting that information at some level. And that's what this psalm is telling us. That's the reason there's plenty of people who don't believe what we would consider right. You know? And these people, they're loving people. They're caring people. They're incredibly good people. And your neighbors might be like this and not know our Christ. You say, well, why, why would God endow wisdom and goodness and on people who don't even believe in him? The answer is, he's gracious. Rain falls on the just and the unjust. He's gracious. Think, 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 think how lousy this world would be if only Christians were good. Only Christians were gracious. It's a gift to us all. It's a gift to this world. I don't know if there's any other religion that respects the rest of the world and unbelievers like we do and cares for people like we do in the Christian church. Christianity does. We love people. We care for people no matter what they think or who they are. And thirdly, this psalm does not end at verse 6. Nature doesn't tell us everything, right? We don't get it all from nature about God. Verse 7 starts talking about the scriptures. God is speaking to us through words. Immediately, verse 7 says, the law of the Lord, which is the scriptures, right? The law of the Lord, the scriptures is perfect. Is perfect. Why would he say perfect? Because in verses 1 through 6, as great as the information is, as great as that communication through nature is, it's unclear. It's unclear. For example, have you tried nonverbal communication? Yeah. Have you tried that? My wife uh, in church has all sorts of nonverbal ways of saying to me, It's time to finish your sermon. Sometimes she'll say, "You know, it's Tom. It's really been good up to now, but now's the time to stop." Or it's not been good up to now, so why are you going on with something? You know, facial expressions, and you get the you know thing. uh, Time to time to be done, Tom. Gestures, things that they you know you, you catch all this. But try to communicate across the room without using words. Try to communicate with, to someone across the room. For example, meet me at Culver's at 7 o'clock and dress formally. How would you do that without words? How would you do that without words? A little hard, uh, non-verbally, right? Right. Nonverbal communication is okay. Nature does tell us about God But you get mixed messages. There are disasters. There's tornadoes and earthquakes that don't tell me about the glory of God. We need something more than nature. need something more than nature. And so in verses 7 through 12, David talks to us about the more of scriptures, the perfect word of God to us. And these are, he calls them the law of the Lord, statutes of the Lord, precepts, commands, ordinance of the Lord. They're not parts of Scripture. They're synonyms. They're synonyms. They are the Word of God. So so look at it. The law of the Lord is perfect, trustworthy, right, sure. These are incredibly strong adjectives that he's using here in Scripture. Perfect means flawless. Sure means you can trust in it. The word right in verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right. It literally means straight edge. It's a straight edge. A straight edge is a thing that you measure other things by. So David is saying here in Scripture, you never determine whether Scripture is true or right by using some other standard. All standards are judged by the Scriptures. It's the straight edge. It's right. Then it says in verse 9, if you're following me, the ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. Altogether means every one of them, right? Altogether righteous, every one of them. Every verse equally right. Every verse equally sure, equally perfect. Some are not truer than others. Some of them, you know, we, we've gotten past them. You know, say, well, I don't, I don't, I don't really believe that. We're, we're smarter than that now. Frankly, it's, it's an astounding statement that he's making here. really is. And the power of it that we're going to see. Take a look at the, uh, the second lines of all of these verses. This is poetry that he's writing here, so it has a symmetry to it that's, that's really nice. The things David says about the power of the scriptures are absolutely astounding. First, it revives the soul. It revives the soul. The end of Psalms 23 we see that, you know, he restores my same thing. He restores my soul. We sang about it just a little bit ago. The word soul here has in the Hebrew, it's, it's a nuance of psyche. He restores my psyche, which is you, yourself, your personhood. The best translation of this would be this. The scripture has the power to show you who you are. It has the power to restore your true identity. Revive means there's something wrong to revive yourself. You something wrong here with your identity. You're out of touch with yourself, of who you are. The scripture has the power for you to see that and bring you back. And that's amazing. You know, David is saying this is not something you're going to find in communication with the natural world. He started with that, but he didn't stop there. Scripture alone is what he's saying, can show you and make you who you really are. Only the Scripture will show you you are more flawed, more messed up than you ever dared believe. That's fun, right? Secondly, Scripture will show you you're more loved and you're more accepted and valued than you ever dared believe. I mean, there's a two-edged corn here. And thirdly, Verse 7 says, makes wise the simple. So listen, when you were 15 years old, you think and you think back that far, if you were 15 years old, and you're 15-year-old self, you'd look at him and say, well, that, I was a fool back then. I really was. I was, I, I was a fool back then, right? If you're in your early 50s, and you think back to your early 20s, you're going to feel the same way. You know, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I acted like that. I can't believe I know so little about my own heart, my own life, and how it works. Do you realize the implication of that? Your present self is a fool to your 20 years from now self. 20 years from now. You're simple now. You're a jerk now. You're welcome. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> Verse 11 says. By them your servant is warned, right? Right now there are young people doing stuff that 15 years from now, they're going to say, I can't believe I did that. I hurt myself. I hurt other people. Read the scriptures and it will keep you from doing that now. That's what scripture says. Read the scripture. It will keep you from hurting people and doing things like that now. It'll stop you now. It makes wise the simple. It revives your soul and then it scripture says it delights your heart delights your heart and this is fascinating it says the precepts of the lord are right giving joy to our hearts and then later says they are more precious than pure gold sweeter than the honeycomb that's an amazing statement to me that's an amazing statement We can understand, and we we sang about the promises and the goodness of God, just a little while. We can understand God, uh, we're talking about God's mercies, how wonderful that is, sweeter than the honeycomb, you know, all of his mercies, his grace and his wonder and his goodness. But what the poet is actually talking about here is God's law, the law of God, his commandments, not his promises, the law of the Lord, he says here. It's one thing to say God's promises are sweeter than honey. They delight my heart. I love the promises of God. Or God's mercies are sweeter than honey. But he's talking about commands. The commands in Scripture. Come on. Come on. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt. I, I can understand that we trust and respect these statutes and try to obey them. But it's Hard for me to find out how they can be delicious. How can these things be delicious, you know? And it's not just Psalms 19. Psalms 1 says the same thing. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. He delights in having God tell him what to do. He meditates on the law, the precepts, the ordinances, day and night. It's sweeter than a honeycomb. This is the language of a man and a woman who look at the absolute law of God with all of its demands and sees absolute beauty. It's so odd. It's so odd. We obey rules because we have to. How in the world can you get your heart to the place where you delight in the law of God? You know? Sweeter than the honey. How? How? They all go together. The simple becoming wise, the not knowing who we are, to knowing who we are, the rewiring of our inner motivations of the heart, it all works together from the scriptures. How in the world can this happen? That leads to the third point I want to make. But first I want to deal with something that Christians say all the time. And you heard this, I heard this. uh, And I've heard people say, well, you know, I'm willing to admit the Bible has a lot of good stuff in it. You know, know, it's a good book. A lot of good stuff in the Bible. But there are certain texts I I just find offensive. I don't like it. And I just can't, I I can't, I can't go there. Uh, Certain teachings that are regressive you know, that's backward. We don't think like that anymore. We're, we're different. They're regressive. I can't accept the idea of the, the complete authority of the Bible. That's what they're saying. The complete authority of Scripture. Now think about this, will you? And what it says. Do you realize that every culture in every time has had a different set of mores? and a different set of what they think is offensive? Do you understand the text you today find offensive? You're only offended because of what, where you are culturally and how your culture is speaking into your life. Every single culture has a different set of things that upset them. And if you say, I don't believe in the biblical authority because I can't accept these things, what you're actually saying is, my culture is superior to all others. My time, my place, how we believe today, and what's going on today, my viewpoint is superior to all others and all other cultures. Consider the only way you can be sure you're listening to God and thinking for yourself and not believing what your culture is pushing down your throat and wants you to believe, the only way is not just a mindless mimicking of the culture, but you're embracing the texts of Scripture that you find most offensive. The hard stuff that God says, the difficult stuff that God says, now think about that. Just think about it. Half of the views of your great-grandparents are now obsolete. Don't think like that anymore. Our culture doesn't think like that anymore. You realize that your great-grandchildren are going to feel the same way about you? Though Lord Terry's, you know. And you're going to throw out the authority of the Bible. You're going to throw out the authority of the Bible and its power to restore your identity. Its power to redo the motivational drive of your heart. The power to make the wise simple just for a cultural set of beliefs that's going to be obsolete in 50 to 100 years from now. Really? Come on. Come on. C.S. Lewis made this statement. He says, All that is not eternal is eternally out of date. And that's true. See, God God looks at things from eternity, not like us. We're so finite down here. We're so caught in this uh, this culture that we're in and the culture of our world. But he looks at things differently. He looks at things forever. Jesus made this statement, all that is not eternal will pass away. It's going away. Only what is eternal will last. Let me um, um, we take we take things and I was thinking about this last week. We take things. It's like it's like this, this stool or the pew you're sitting in or the stuff that we gather around our lives, you know. And we make these things so important. We make these things so important. What if I just, 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 just took this and busted it? Would that bother you? Huh? If I just busted it? Threw it down, jumped on it, cracked it. Would it bother you? Would it upset you? In light of eternity, in light of people and people's lives, and we, you know, when you, when, you, when you stood, Doreen, and you said, Jake, and, and, you, and you looked at your son, everything else melts away. Everything else melts away in light of people people are eternal people are forever it's not about that it's not about this it's not about stuff that we surround ourselves with it's not about any of that stuff it's about people and people's lives if I could trade positions now with my wife I'd do it in a second so she could be well it's about people and people's lives and how we think about people and speak into people's lives. And, uh, and, I, and I was reminded again of this last, last Sunday when. and I'm, I'm so glad Andy and Laura are here with, with Briella and over there on the side. But uh, for the longest time, I thought, and, and Laura would sit in the other room, you know, uh, and I thought for the longest time, I thought, well, she's over there because of COVID. And uh, so it didn't want the kids around. That might have been part of it. But then after a while, um, I saw them last Sunday sitting back, back in the back there in the back pew. And then Andy comes and talks to me. And we start talking about Briella. And the opportunity to be in the worship service with the rest of the family, to be in the worship service with the rest of us. And you're saying, you know, we need to we need to take out a pew back there, so that people like Briella have a place where we can park their carts and do this and do that. And and so we took it to the elders, and the elders said, yeah, let's do that. Let's take out that back pew. And let's put some chairs back there and let's, so, so people can come and be a part of the worship service and not, not feel there's no place for them here in the church. And it's just a pew. It's just a pew. People are eternal. People are eternal. And that's where I look at, when I'm looking at scripture here, and, and, and he is right when he says this. Jesus is saying the same thing. All that is not eternal is going to pass away. You know, I could take that, that pew, cut it up and go out. We burned a desk last night that they threw out there. No one's going to miss it. But if a life is involved, if a life is involved, ah. Uh, Scripture says, uh, do all for the glory of God. I, I like the, uh, the, you know, when you, when you watch the Olympics, they're always talking about they do the gymnastics and they'll be on the parallel bars or they'll be on the, the, the horse and they'll come jumping down there and they'll jump up there and flip around about, and then what happens? They come down, boom! And they say, they stuck the landing. They stuck the landing. And if they don't stick the landing, it's not a good thing. For us, as Christian people, we better stick the landing in what's important in our lives. What lasts forever in our lives. Stick the landing where God puts us. And we need to do that. So I like, I like that. Do all to the glory of God. And, um, and we want to do that as a family of God. And we want to do that for one another. We want to think about other people as well. Uh, The question in scripture here, uh, see Mary would be going right here, right now. How is it possible for the power of the Holy Spirit to come into your life, rework your heart, you know, so that the law of God becomes sweeter than a honeycomb? How does that happen? And the answer is in the last section that Andy was reading and I wrote. It says this, it's in the searching word of God. God's word searches us out. Who can discern his errors? Who, forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant from willful sins that they may not rule over me. And when, then I will be blameless, innocent of transgressions. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing. in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my salvation. You see the contradiction here in scripture? It's contradicting itself. It says, who can discern my errors? That's rhetorical. That means no one. Who can discern? You can't, you you don't know my heart. Who can discern my, no one, he says. He says, the best I can hope for in my life is that I might see willful sins, deliberate sins, and avoid them. That's the best I can hope for. And then if I will be innocent, maybe of the big stuff. That's what he's saying. The one thing I will never be able to overcome is to see all the sins in my heart. Other people see them, but I can't see them. I can't see them. There's pride there, there's self-justification, defensiveness, prejudice, there's unkindness that's, that's, that's lurking there, there's, that's messing up my life and messing up who I am because I can't see it. Other people see it. We don't. And then he says, may the words of my mouth, he has confidence that this is possible and the meditations of my heart be acceptable. Yes, He has confidence that God can do this right um, How can he say this, though? I, I'm going to give you the answer to it. It's in the last two words of this psalm. How can God look at me and be delighted with what He sees? Because I'm a mess. The answer is the last two words. He knows God as a redeemer. He knows God as a redeemer there was a greater servant than the one who wrote this psalm. There was a greater one that delighted in the law of the Lord completely. He meditated on it day and night. When Satan comes to Jesus, Jesus always answers him with Scripture. When the Pharisees and the teachers of the law accuse him, threaten him, he always answers with Scripture. It is written. It is written right on his tongue, right on his heart. And when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and under all that pressure and Peter takes out his sword, he says, Peter... Put your sword down; the scriptures, or the scriptures won't be fulfilled. He thinks about scripture when he's on the Via della Rosa, and he walks, and he falls down, and the women are looking at him and crying and weeping. He quotes Hosea, saying, "Don't weep for me." When he's on the cross, in the worst moment, the greatest pain anyone has ever experienced, he's quoting Scripture, Psalms 22: "My God, my God." When you stab him, he bled Scripture. He screamed Scripture from the cross. This is the only man who ever lived who completely delighted in the law of God and meditated on it day and night. He was saturated with it. But what's he doing on the cross? He's a good man. What's he doing on the cross? And the answer is in verse 11. It says, In keeping this law, there's great reward. Now watch this. In keeping the law, there is great reward. Ah! But in not keeping the law, there's punishment. There's punishment. And he's on the cross receiving punishment. Jesus is the only servant... Whoever kept them all and therefore earned the reward from God, the Father. And when he got to the end of his life, he died on the cross. He took our punishment for our disobedience so that when we accept him, when we love him, when we believe in him, then his reward comes to us. His reward comes to us. The reward for his perfect law-keeping comes to us and the punishment of our imperfect law-keeping goes to him. Right? He receives the punishment. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. It goes, it goes to him. It says that in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing of the law might come to us through Christ. That's what I just got done saying. That's what rewires our hearts, people. That rewires our hearts. The, the moralistic person obeys the law out of fear. The relativistic person is indifferent to the law, doesn't care about the law. But Christians say, people who love God say, I delight in the law because obeying God's law delights the one who delights so much. That he died for me. He loves me. And now, when you look at the law of God, you see beauty. You see the beauty of it. I want you to know if you read your Bible like a bunch of rules, it won't be a honeycomb. It won't change your identity, won't change your heart, won't rewire your heart. It will crush you. The Bible will crush you. There's another way to read the Bible. You read Psalms 19, you're reading about a redeemer. About one who really was perfect. A sacrifice. And suddenly you begin to see how the law of God can be a delight. Only through Jesus, who has fulfilled the law, can the written word of God be a delight to you. Otherwise it'll destroy you. It'll destroy you. And I close with this. Timothy 3. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. Colossians 3.16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. This Thanksgiving, be thankful for the word of God. Be thankful for the word of God because that's changed your life. Changed your life. And it'll change the life of people around you. Let's pray together. We love, we love your word, our Father. We're so thankful for the things you give us in life, the stuff. You have blessed us more than... We deserve. But we're looking at the eternal, our Father, and things that are eternal. And it all comes down to people. It comes down to your word that your word is eternal, it lasts forever, never changes. complete, perfect. And it speaks into our hearts and our lives in ways that help us to look at ourselves, look deep within our lives and find the Holy Spirit restoring our souls. Correcting us. Loving us like we've never been loved before. We thank you for that. We thank you for the scriptures this morning. We thank you for them as we get around tables this week from all the blessings that we're going to experience with family and friends and, and the food and the, all, all of the trimmings that are there and, and the gatherings that we're going to have. That as we look around and we see all the, the, the stuff that's there, everything is stuff, until we see the people, the family, the, the children, the grandchildren, eternal things the word of God, eternal things. We pray, Father, that we, we, would, we would recognize that and that we would rejoice in that and that would fill our hearts with love, not only for you, but for one another. And we give this to you and we thank you for this time of thanksgiving where we can, we can lift one another before you and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for my neighbor. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for what you continue to do in the lives of our children and grandchildren. Thank you for our life. Thank you for my wife, thank you for my husband. Thank you for your presence, your presence in our life. And this is our heart today. in Jesus name, we pray. Amen.